to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. Uh, we're glad that you're here this, with us this morning. And for those of you who don't know who I am, I am uh, Sherman Burkhead. I'm the, I'm the pastor here. And I'll have to admit, you know, um, I'm easily, easily pleased. And uh, I say that because, like, I don't know if you noticed, but like this morning, like in the rows in front of you, there are actually new pew Bibles here. And uh, I know it shouldn't excite me that much, you know, but the reality is it was one of the first things on my list, you know, when we, when I actually um, uh, took over as the as the pastors, that we were going to actually get like pew Bibles that, you know, that looked good and they didn't fall apart. And, and uh, nearly four years later, we finally got it done. And so, yes. And so it would please me if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those pew Bibles. But if you do have a Bible with you um, or you have a Bible app on your mobile device, uh, turn with me to the, to the book of first, I mean, second Peter, and we're going to be in chapter number one. And, um, Today we are in the fifth part of our series that we titled Pillar of Truth. And, and the title of this series comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 where, where, where Paul writes to the young pastor and says, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The reason why we're in this series is really simple. The church is not an organization, okay? The church is actually a living organism made up of individual believers. And it is this group of believers that is to be God's appointed instrument in the world around us to be a pillar of truth for the, all the world to see. It is our job as a church to lift up and support the truth for the world to see. You see, uh, the, the church is the pillar of truth. It's the, the upright structural member that resists the force of gravity in order to hold something up. And what the church holds up is the absolute objective truth about God, his glory and his plan to save mankind from a world that has turned away from that truth. And, and, and since you and I are, are the church, we together, we make up this pillar of truth, especially here in this community. And, and, and this is especially important in our times because Western culture, our culture, okay, has adopted, unbeknownst to most people, has adopted postmodern philosophy, which says this, that basically all truth is relative. Our world believes that there's no objective standard for the truth. Okay, it believes that, 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 that there's no harsh, there, there's no standard or rigid standard for truth. And it doesn't believe it because it's actually the truth. It believes it because it's just assumed they've adopted this philosophy. And, and most people don't even know that they've adopted this philosophy. But because so many parts of our world, our media, our culture, arts, entertainment have all adopted this philosophy slowly but subtly. It's just become kind of the norm. It's believed not because it's true. It's believed because it's uncritically assumed to be true. And this relative truth has really had devastating consequences on our culture. And we've talked a lot about that over the last four weeks. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through all that list again. But if you've missed any part of this series and you really want to know where we're going with this, then I encourage you to go to our church website or our SoundCloud page. Uh, the addresses are in the bulletin. And, uh, and, and if you've missed something, then you can go back and you can listen to what you've missed and gain a full understanding of what we talked about so far. But the, but the truth is our world has adopted a subjective and relative view of the truth and actually has become hostile to the notion of an objective and real truth. And, and, and so it's, it's been seeking to undermine any institution that 
holds up the objective truth for the world around us. That is why our faith is under fire in a country like ours today. I mentioned earlier that we have the privilege to be able to speak out and and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. But that is not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's definitely not the same as it was 20 years ago. And it won't be the same 10 years from now as it is now. That's why it's so important that the church is the pillar of truth. because, Because the church is to stand firm and resist the gravitational pull of the world. The church is to stand firm, unmovable, unshakable, unchanging, built on the foundation of the word of God, supporting the truth about who God is and the gospel for all of the world to see. And in the first week, we talked about the fact that the church is the pillar of the truth. And and as such, it is to protect and to preserve and and teach sound or true doctrine. And again, doctrine is not some abstract theological word. Doctrine just simply means teaching. The teachings of the church or the doctrines of the church are the critical foundation on which all of Christianity is built. Because the way that you learn about Christ is through doctrine. The way that we, we pass down from one generation to the next, the truth about God and the gospel is through doctrine and through teaching. And so because of this, one of the most important things that a church can do as a group and as individuals is to protect and to preserve and to stand up for and to teach sound biblical doctrine and correct anyone in the church who teaches something different or a false doctrine. Because as we said before, Over and over again, we've said this, that true doctrine leads to life. It's what you believe that saves you. And false doctrine leads to death. That's why doctrine is so important. That's why in week one, the first doctrine we talked about is the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. And Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Okay, All scripture, not some scripture, not most of scripture, all scripture is the very word of God. And as such, it's the foundation of the church and it's the foundation of the the doctrines that we teach that lead to life. And and I have to tell you this morning that with a really kind of heavy heart, um, a pastor and, and, uh, and a leader of a huge church out of Atlanta, Georgia, who I've had so much respect for and looked up to, um, he has succumbed to the, pressure, the pressures of postmodern philosophy. You see, a couple weeks ago, in a Sunday morning sermon, sermon to over 35,000 people, that's how many people he reaches every week, this pastor announced that the Christian faith is not founded on the Bible. That's his exact words. He said, the Christian faith is not founded on the Bible. In fact, in one of his direct quotes in one of his sermons, he says, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, then Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards. And let me just tell you, this is, this is not some like, you know, fringe, nut job charlatan. Okay, this is a man who's been a mainstream evangelical pastor for years. He's associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and his dad is a very famous conservative Baptist minister. I mean, this is someone that I have had the, most up, the utmost respect for, and, and, and he has profoundly influenced me as a pastor in, in the, way that I, the way that I teach and in, in the way that I try to communicate. This man has slipped off the foundation of truth. He has slipped off the rock-solid foundation of truth because of pressure from culture. And because that, he is coming off that foundation um, of our faith. He is actually beginning to soften on many cultural issues 
that the church faces. Again, it's a really you know, difficult spot for a man to have 35,000 people look into him and have the cultural pressure and he's beginning to collapse. So if we, I just encourage all of us to pray for him. And that's also why doctrine is so important. That's why Paul said to, to, uh, to Titus, he said to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. True doctrine leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. And then in the second week, we talked about the result of sound doctrine. You see, sound doctrine from the word of God, once we know it, once we believe it, it changes us and it brings about right action. True doctrine leads to right action. If you believe the truth, the truth, the truth will change you. It will change you and alter the way you live. Once you believed the, the, the true doctrine about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that doctrine changed you and you moved towards Christ in faith and you became a new creation. Sound doctrine always leads to right action. And in the third week, we talked about how, how that right action causes us to stand out in stark contrast to the rest of the world. That Christ followers, okay, as Christ followers, sound doctrine should lead us to become the most loving and compassionate and gracious and obedient people in the entire world. You see, the world with its relative truth is not focused on anything else but self. It's all about self. Christ followers, on the other hand, are supposed to live by an objective truth that should lead us to be focused not on ourself, but on God first and then all others. And then last week we talked about the idea that connects these three things together. And that's the, the, the idea of eusebia, which is the Greek word for godliness. Godliness is simply a mind that is focused on God that leads to a life that's focused on God. Godliness comes from sound doctrine or the word of God. Godliness comes from doctrine itself and then it expresses itself in right action. And that right action leads to a stark contrast to the rest of the world. Godliness connects these three things together. But more than that, because, more than that, godliness, because it's, because it's a heart and mind focused on God, from that godliness comes other things. Other things like righteous actions, practical holiness, mercy, grace, compassion, love, patience, kindness, goodness. So many other things come from this life and mind that are in heart that are centered on God. It's a natural byproduct of living a godly life. And so when your heart is focused on God, these characteristics naturally flow out of it into your life. And today we're going to talk about a particular characteristic that follows a heart that's set on God. And like godliness, this is an idea that Paul talks about over and over and over again in these three letters to uh, Timothy and Titus. In fact, Paul mentions this nine times in these three short letters. And this characteristic is an idea that it's important because it represents actually our part and our response to the work that God is actually doing in our lives. Because think about this, okay? With everything that we've talked about, the truth of God's word is the source of doctrine. And that doctrine, when it's believed and applied to our lives, leads to a heart centered on God and then right action, which is a life centered on God. And that right action then leads to, to us as a church individually and corporately standing out as a beacon of hope in a dark world. And in all of that we've talked about, what we see is a dynamic where God does something and then we in turn, enabled by the Holy Spirit, respond to what God does. In fact, let me just illustrate this. We begin with the fact that we are broken sinners with absolutely no reason or hope because we are in sin. 
God absolutely has no obligation to, to do anything about it. He has no obligation to help us. He has absolutely no obligation to do anything about it because he's completely holy, righteous, and sovereign. Okay? So the fact is we are helpless, hopeless, and rightfully condemned to an eternity in hell because of our sin. But God... Okay, but God, because of his glory and his own will and love and grace and mercy for us, he makes a way for us to escape this damnation and to have a life-giving relationship with him. He sends his own son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only that, God, the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel so that we can actually do something about it. And so what we do is we respond to what God has done. And our response to that gift of grace, our response to what God has given us is to repent from our sins and to receive Christ by faith. That is how we move into a relationship with God. That's how we are saved. God gives us the grace. We respond with repentance and faith. And as, we, as we've said many times, God loves you exactly the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. God does not save you from your sin so that you can stay in your sin. God saves you from your sin, but not to leave you in that sin. God saves you from the penalty of sin by justifying you, but he also is progressively saves you from the power of sin in your life by sanctifying you, which leads to our response. You see, God, through the sacrifice of Christ, justifies us. We are justified by the finished work on the cross, and we respond to that by, with repentance and faith. And once we are justified, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and through that work the Holy Spirit does inside of us, God progressively sanctifies us, and we respond to the sanctifying work through the idea that we're going to talk about this morning. You see, what we're going to talk about this morning is, is actually our part of the work that's being done inside of us to help us to grow and to change and become the spiritually mature Christ followers that God is calling all of us to be. And, and that idea and that response to God's sanctifying work is this word right here. Okay, It's called sophron. Okay. Now, sophron is a Greek word found in the New Testament that gets translated into the ESV as this. It's the idea of self-control. That's what it means. Okay. Now, other translations use this, use this word, it, it, like they, they use words like sober-minded or temperate or vigilant, you know, or, or stable or even sensible. Okay. And these are all good choices, but, but really at the heart of sophron is this idea of clear-headedness. It, it, it's a mind that is set on God that leads to a balanced life and good decisions. It is controlling oneself in a way that is pleasing to God and is in accordance to his will. It is setting your mind on God in a way that controls your actions. So self-control is a good word that represents the idea behind sophron. And so self-control is our response to the sanctifying work of God in our lives. God begins the work in us in, in sanctifying us and we respond with self-control. And nine times in this text, Paul uses this word or similar words to get that, that gets expressed in English as self-control. Now the idea of self-control is really huge and, and important for the church to be the pillar, pillar of truth because, because how are we going to be the light of the world without self-control? control. 
without self-control in our lives, we just end up looking like the rest of the world. And and self-control is important for the church and it's important for everyone who lives in the church. In fact, Paul says that pastors and elders and deacons uh, are to be men that exhibit self-control. He also says that older men in the church should be self-controlled. He also says that about younger men too. But this isn't just about men. He says older women and younger women also are likewise to be self-controlled. Self-control is for everyone in the church. Everyone in the church is instructed to exhibit this characteristic of self-control. In fact, Paul says that not only did Jesus come to save us, he came to train us in a life that's self-controlled. Okay? And this is the same text where Paul talks about how Christ instructs us to live upright and godly lives. It's part of Jesus' mission and redemptive work that we'd not only be saved from our sin, but we also learn to progressively grow in self-control. Self-control is so important as a characteristic in these letters. It's, it's a huge important theme. It's important because it has direct bearing on how we as a church end up being the pillar of truth. Because the world, with its relative truth, isn't interested in self-control. In fact, fact, Paul notes that the opposite of self-control is fear. And worse, he says the lack of self-control can be likened to uh, being heartless and unappeasable and slanderous and brutal and, and not even loving good. The truth is most people in our culture are not interested in self-control. Now, they're certainly interested in controlling other people. And they're interested in controlling situations. And they're certainly interested in controlling their money and the economy. And they're interested in controlling things at work. But for the most part, most people in our culture, and I would even say many people in the church, including some in our own church, are not interested at all in self-control. Why? Because self-control means there's something wrong with me. There's something in me that needs to be controlled. There's something in me that wants to do something or be something or have something that I shouldn't have, right? And self-control means I have to deny myself those things. That I need to moderate my behavior. And I don't want to do that, right? I don't, I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to moderate my behavior. I don't want to tell myself no. I don't want to set restrictions on myself. It's, just, it's the opposite of what the world tells us. The world says... <laughs> Live for yourself, right? To thine own self be true, right? Do what you want to do. Do what your heart says to do. Follow your heart. Live for the moment. It's all about you. Obey your thirst, right? These are the things that culture tells us that's important, right? It's all about you and what you want. And and all of that goes against this biblical idea of self-control. Now, as we said, self-control is actually born out of godliness because it is, because a life centered on God should naturally begin to lead us to want to do what God wants us to do. And it should lead us to deny ourselves the things that God doesn't want us to do. It should be the natural and appropriate response in us to the sanctifying work that God is doing in us as we grow to stand out in stark contrast to the rest of the world. Now, as I mentioned before, self-control is an important theme in these three letters. And Paul talks about over and over again. And he makes it clear that everybody should be practicing self-control. And he makes, makes a point to highlight the characteristics, you know, to Timothy and Titus. And because of that, we're going to spend, you know, some time this morning taking a closer, loot, uh, closer look at this fruit of the Spirit. But today, we're going to actually step out of the three letters of Paul uh, for a while. And we're going to look at the Apostle Peter and what he has to see, what he, what he has to say about self-control um, in uh, 
Second Peter chapter 1. And before we jump right into the text here, let me just kind of set this up and give you the context um, and tell you why Peter's actually writing these letters in the first place. You see, Peter, just like Paul, in the latter years of his life and his ministry, he's concerned about the gospel and the church continuing on to pass what is taught down to the next generation. And one of the things that he's concerned about is exactly what Paul's concerned about. And what he's concerned about is false teachers. Peter was concerned about false teachers and, and preaching false doctrine because the true doctrine, as we've said, leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. And so Peter was naturally concerned because he saw changes in the world around him. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur says, Peter had become increasingly concerned with false teachers who were infiltrating churches in Asia Minor. Uh, though these false teachers had already caused trouble, Peter expected that their heretical doctrine and immoral lifestyle would result in, in more damage in the future. Thus, Peter, in almost his last will and testament, wrote to warn the beloved believers in Christ about the doctrinal dangers that they were facing. You see, Peter and Paul were concerned with the exact same things because they are the same issues that face the church. False teachers, false doctrine, fruitless believers, and a local church that begins to look and act like just like the rest of the world. And those are the issues that were faced by the church in the first century. And guess what? They're the exact same issues that we face right here, right now in the 21st century. And, and Peter wrote to deal with this. And in this letter, you know, he does deal with false teachers, but he also makes a point to refer to Paul and Paul's writings. And in his letter, Peter himself says that Paul's writings are not simply just writings of a man. They are inspired holy scripture and they are authoritative as such. In fact, he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. They, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. And the word that he uses here in Greek for scriptures is specific to holy scripture. So in this letter, Peter points out that false, he points out the false teachings and false doctrines that are, that are abounding. And he makes a clear point that, that the letters of Paul are exactly what we believe them to be, holy scripture. And in this, the same letter that Peter also talks about this issue of self-control. In, in chapter one is where we're going to read about it. And what I'm going to do real quick is, is I want to read through this entire text that we're going we're to address this morning, and then we'll go back and look at the specific details. So let's, let's read this together. Uh, chapter one, verse one, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so this letter is, just so you know, it's, it's addressed to believers. It says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to him, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious uh, and, and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
For this very reason, make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted to, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, there is a whole lot of theology wrapped up in this little section of text. There's a lot to talk about. And, and uh, in fact, there's more than we can tackle here in this one message. Um, but, but there is an overarching theme that connects this text to the letters of, of Paul. Okay? And, and there's also the, the connected idea in this text about godliness and self-control. And so we're going to go ahead and take a look at this specific focus. So looking at verse uh, 3, Peter says, his divine power, okay, God's divine power has granted to us, to us, okay, so this is, this is a positive statement. He has positively given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, let me just stop right here because I don't want you to miss this. This is an extremely important point here. God in his power has given us everything, Everything that pertains to or concerns these two things, life and godliness. And what we have to understand here is this word life here is the word zoe, the Greek word zoe. Okay, we've heard people call that before, right? But it's a Greek word and it means more than physical life. It actually means spiritual life. Okay, and so what Peter is saying here is God has given us everything we need for life, spiritual life and eternal life, okay? So we've been given everything we need for, for eternal life and godliness. And now we know what godliness means. We've talked about it. Godliness is a heart centered on God that leads to a life centered on God. Okay? And so God gives us not just some things we need or a few things that we need, but he gives us everything we need for eternal life and a life that is focused on him. God gives us everything we need for that. He gives us everything that we need to be saved and he gives us everything we need to live the lives that he is calling us to live. Now, here's the very important implication of this. If you are a Christ follower and you are not living the life that God is calling you to live, it is not because you don't have what you need. Okay, that's the implication. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that one down, okay? If you are a Christ follower and you are not living the life that God is calling you to live, it is not because you don't have what you need. Because God has already given you everything through his power of what you need. Which means if you're not living the life that's focused on God, it's either because you are not actually have been saved and so you cannot focus your life on God or it's just simply you refuse to live a life that's focused on God. It's not because God hasn't empowered you to do so yet. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, sound doctrine, okay, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, given us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now you talk about 
a, a big subject that is really hard to quantify here. All right, you read all the commentaries on this. There's so much dialogue on this divine nature, okay? What is the divine nature? Well, we get a hint to what he's kind of alluding to in the next part of the phrase. It says that we may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. You see, as sinners, we became separated from the presence of God. We became spiritually dead in our sin. And remember, we were made in the image of God himself. We were told that in Genesis. We were made to reflect God and we were made for close communion with God. But once sin entered the world, something was lost. And what was lost to us is the life-giving connection that we had to God. We became separated from him. And because of that, we lost any power that we had over corruption. Okay? We, were, we were sinners and slaves to sin. We were unable to escape the penalty of sin. And we were unable to escape the power of sin. Sin reigned over all of our lives. And our sin, you know, and because of that sin, our image, the image of, of God in us became broken and skewed and dark. And because of God's precious and great promises, we as believers in Christ become partakers of God's divine nature. Again, we get to connect with and interact with the divine nature. This connection that was lost is now restored because think about this. Once you give your life to Christ, as we talked about, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. God himself makes his home inside of you. And as you follow Christ, he is in you, with you, changing you, shaping you, restoring you back to the original, that image of God that was in us. What was originally lost is being restored by the power of God. And not only that, you were saved from the, not only are you saved from the penalty of sin, not only are you, are you justified and in, in, in the penalty of sin removed from you, you're given freedom from the bondage of sin. We are progressively being set free from the hold of sin over us in this life. Remember, Peter said, you've been given everything, everything for life and godliness. Your life can now be centered on God because God made it possible. Your life can be centered on God and the fruit of your life can show it because that connection has been between you and God has been restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, what does he say? He says every effort. Okay. He doesn't say make a little effort. He doesn't say make some kind of an effort. He doesn't make a half-hearted effort. He says make every effort. Effort, every effort, which means we need to do everything that we can do. Everything in our power to supplement our faith. And we need to supplement our faith with virtue. Okay? And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Now, in this text right here, Peter gives us a list of things that we need to supplement our faith with. Okay? And, and, and he gives us a list to, to, to pursue in our lives. And, and this list is we're to make every effort toward. Now, I can do an entire series just on this list right here. All right. But, but for the purpose of this series and for the purpose of being the pillar of truth and the purpose of this discussion and living the, and, and doing what, what God's calling us to do, we're going to focus on this idea of self-control in this text. Because, because here's what you have to understand. 
Paul says that self-control is something that Christ came to train us in. And he also tells us every member of the church is to practice self-control. But Peter says in this text, he says that not only do we need to practice it, we need to make every effort to supplement our faith with it. So you have to understand, we are not simply to acknowledge self-control is important. We're not simply to, to say that, self, that we identify, you know, um, uh, self-control is something that we need. We need to make every effort toward it. We need to make every effort to gain it. We need to do everything in our power to get it. You see, for many Christians, change is about them going to God and saying, God, please take away this desire from me. God, take away this desire to drink. God, take away this desire to look at porn. God, take away this desire to gossip. Take away this desire to not be honest. Lord, just take away this desire from me. Okay. It's, it's about God miraculously and instantaneously changing us. Okay. And, and like, you know, like so many of us Christians, this is what we assume, that that's the way it's supposed to work. And, and there are times, all right, for some Christians, that's what God does. He, he just miraculously changes us in an instant. Like my brother. My brother, when he gave his life to Christ, he prayed that God would take away his addiction to meth. And he did. It was like instantaneously. Okay? But God doesn't always do it that way. And he doesn't do that way for everyone. And the reason for that is the value of self-control. God, through the Holy Spirit, is living in you and has already given you the power to overcome your sin. It is your job then to exercise that power. And the power that God has given us is self-control. Self-control is what God has given you to live the life that he's calling you to live. Self-control is that spiritual tool that God has blessed you with to help you overcome the power of sin in your life. That's why God, you know, through Peter says, make every effort toward it. He says that you're to strive for it and to fight for it and to struggle to get it. But for most Christians, we're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do anything like that. I just want God to change me. I just, I just want God to snap his fingers and make me different. I just want God to just hocus pocus and boom, you know, now, you know, I'm not tempted anymore, right? But that's, that's not how it works. You see, it is the exercising of self-control that helps to change you. Just like exercising changes your body, all right, so it is with self-control. It is the grace-driven effort in your life that changes you. God in you and his grace has given you this new life and a, and, and a, and a personal connection with him that he's able to, to be with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and he's given you the ability to use this tool of self-control. Now understand this, okay? God saved you. He gave you a brand new life with a new nature. As Paul says, the old is gone and the new has come. And he has moved inside of you, taken up residence, and you have a 24-hour a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, high-speed connection to God. Okay, he's inside you, at work in you, uh, changing you, strengthening you, comforting you, and he's given you the practical tool that you can actually use that works. He's given you self-control. You and I just need to stop making excuses and use it. And pursue it. And remember he said, make every effort to supplement your faith with it. Which means that, that when you're facing temptation to drink, okay? And, and, and what you need to do is you need to dig deep 
You need to find inside yourself that self-control that God has already given you and you need to do everything in your power to exercise it, even if it's small. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. You need to exercise this power. You need to fight. You need to fight against the temptation. You need to fight the urge that draws you back into drugs. You need to fight the urge that causes you to engage in conversations that are destructive. You need to fight the urge to look at images on the internet that are inappropriate. You need to dig deep and make every effort, not just some effort. Well, I tried. No. You need to make every effort. You need to do everything in your power to exercise self-control. We need to stop being the kinds of Christians that are easily wounded, right? Easily wounded and easily defeated by temptation. We need to stop allowing ourselves to continue to fall on the grace card over and over and over again and pursue God and, and the, the God-centered life that, that, he's, that he's calling us to, we need to stand up and fight back against the temptations in our life with all our might. We need to grab a hold of self-control and say, no, no, I won't do that. Lord, you are too valuable to me for that. Lord, you are too important to me for that. Lord, your glory is so much more important to me than my sin. I will, I will not fall into that trap again. I will not give into that temptation. I will not allow myself to make an excuse. I will stand and fight. I will go to war with my sin. I will walk in the self-control that you're causing me, calling me to, to exercise. We need to pursue it with every effort every effort. And in verse 8, Peter tells us why. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. He says, we obtain this quality okay, of self-control. It helps to keep us from being ineffective and, and unfruitful in the knowledge or the doctrine of the Lord. If we make self-control our priority, if we practice it and pursue it with every effort, it will help us not to be ineffective and unfruitful. Remember, as the pillar of truth, we are to stand in stark contrast with the rest of the world. The rest of the world does not want self-control. It doesn't want it. It wants to do whatever it wants to do. It wants to have what it wants to have. All right? It doesn't matter how vile or vulgar or ineffective or unfruitful it is. It wants to pursue its own ends. The world doesn't want self-control. Self-control is too limiting. And frankly, it's just too hard and too much work for the world. But that's kind of the point. We're to be in contrast to the world. We are to be a pillar of truth in the world that's falling down around us. And self-control is one of those things that helps us to that end. And so Peter, he goes on and says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you refuse to pursue self-control, you lack this quality, Peter says. You're you're blind. Blind to the fact that God paid so much to save you. Blind to the fact that God saved you from your sins. And you have to understand, you didn't deserve it. You're blind to the fact that God saved you from your sins. And he's not only saved you from those sins, but he's given you the power to overcome them. You become blind to the fact that that if you don't walk in obedience and self-control, you simply just look like the rest of the world and they're going to look at you and there's no hope in that. 
You become blind to the fact that you're not living as the bright light in the dark world around us. And then he said, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And in this last statement, Peter makes two really big and important points. The first is if you practice these qualities like self-control, you will never fall. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying, okay? He's not saying that you will never fail. He's not saying that you will never fall into sin at times. He's not saying that your temptation will overcome you at times. He's not saying that you won't stumble. What he's saying is you will never fall. You will never fall away. You will never fall all the way down, okay? He says you will never fall to where you experience spiritual death. You will never be condemned. And the reason why he says this is the other point. He says, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Or in other words, you need to be diligent to demonstrate by the fruit in your life that you are actually saved. That you actually belong to God. Because the hard truth is this. Not every professing Christian is actually of the faith. Not every person who has ever said a prayer is actually a Christ follower. Not every person who believes that they're, that they're a Christian is actually in the faith. As Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A person can own a Bible and come to church and sing worship songs and pray and feel strong emotions and still be hellbound because they are not in the faith because they've not actually put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Because those who actually put their faith in Christ heard sound doctrine of the gospel and they responded by repentance from sin and turned towards Jesus in complete faith to save them. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit moved into their lives and that move of the Holy Spirit will begin to orient the, the believer's mind and heart towards God. And it will lead to a godliness, a heart centered on God and a life centered on God. And the natural response to that, the natural response to the Holy Spirit working in the believer that, that helps them to battle sin is to begin to embrace and pursue self-control. That we begin to do our part to kill sin in our lives. Now, not that we're going to be perfect at this, but it would certainly, we would begin to visibly exercise it. Now, we don't do this in an effort to be saved. We pursue self-control in order to glorify God, thereby demonstrating that we already are saved. As Peter says, you're to confirm your calling and salvation by demonstrating the power of God in your life through characteristics like self-control. Jesus said, okay, you will know the tree by its fruit. We will know the tree by its fruit. Well, we will know the believer from the non-believer by his or her fruit in their life. Self-control is part of that fruit. In fact, Paul calls it part of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, and the fruit of the Spirit, the visible manifestation of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now that we understand <clears throat> that Jesus came to train us up in self-control and that everyone in the church is, is, is commanded to, to be self-controlled and to walk in that and that we're instructed to make every effort towards self-control, and, and that, that we know that we don't grow in self-control, that we are actually blind to the work that God has done in our lives. Now that we know these things, that we've, you know, uncovered these things, 
What do we do with them? I mean, how do you apply this to your life? Well, the short answer is, is you just need to, to have self-control, right? But I think we all know that it needs to be a little bit more specific than that. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage you to take a moment, actually, and think about this. And think about the areas in your life and that you're struggling with. Maybe you're just someone who struggles with finances. And, you know, you just have spending habits that, that are just out of control. You know, maybe you just don't know how to manage your money, you know, and, and you're just struggling with that. Maybe, you know, you're just struggling with having a bad attitude at work. You're just, you know, you can't be the light of Christ at work because you're just, you're just a big jerk. You know, maybe it's your reaction to your spouse and your family. Maybe you're just, you're, you're just not, you know, there for them or loving for them. Maybe it's the fact that you're addicted to something like alcohol or drugs or, you know, maybe you're, you're struggling with porn or, or sex addiction. You know, maybe you're struggling with, with simple, basic spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and, and Bible reading. The truth is there's an area in your life that you're struggling with because we all have those areas. There's an area in your life that you're just not giving into self-control. You're just making excuses. You're just not knuckling down to take care of it. So here's what I want to do is I want to encourage you just to take one thing and not, I mean, believe me, you know, I want you to know when I talk about application that way, I'm talking about application this way, okay? I can write a whole long list of things that I need to be working on. So I'm not here to overwhelm you with this. I'm here to help you walk in this. So take one thing in your life that you're struggling with and actually write it down, okay? And, 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 and the reason why I want you to write this is because here's the opportunity. You have the, you have the opportunity this week to purposely focus your attention to purposely, mindfully, intentionally focus your intention to engage with the Holy Spirit to work in this area of your life. Right? That you, you have the ability right now to join the Holy Spirit's work, what he's doing in you. And, and, and what you have to do is just decide today is, is you're going to decide today that in this area of your life that you're going to begin to focus on practicing self-control. That you're going to make every effort to gain self-control in this particular area of your life. That you're going to refuse to make excuses. That you're going to, 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 to begin to fight to help the Holy Spirit and to walk in this blessed characteristic that God has given us. And, and once you've decided to do this, okay, once you've written down something and you've decided, I'm going to go ahead and focus on this this week. Okay, then what you need to do is you just need to write down something practical you can do this week that actually begins to move you towards that self-control. For example, if you're someone maybe who's struggling with, let's just say alcohol and drugs, because they're the big ones and the easiest ones to spot, okay? You're someone who, who, who's battling with drug and alcohol. What's a step that you could take this week is to decide, I'm done and get plugged into a recovery program this week, okay? That's, that's a clear practical step to take, okay? There's several recovery programs in this community. So there's not an excuse of, hey, it's too far away, all right? There's no excuse to get involved. There is, there's clear practical steps to take. And maybe you're saying, something, I, I need more help than that. All right, great. Come on my office. I'll give you what, all the information you need about Teen Challenge. The application, everything. No excuses. The step that you can take is to do that, all right? The point is, there's something you can do to regain self control. Now for other areas, maybe you struggle with, you know, reading the Bible. Well, then the practical step then is get that mobile device out 
pull that calendar up I know you have, and set yourself an appointment with a reminder alarm to do it. To make a point to every day, I'm going to spend five minutes with God, ten minutes with God. Right? It's a practical step. Maybe, you know, you're struggling with money. Well, pick up a book on personal finance by like somebody like Dave Ramsey, right? Or maybe you're struggling to manage your emotions. Well, maybe, you know, I mean, the reality is, is some people might need to just call the doctor or professional to get the help they need and stop acting like it's a pariah to have mental and emotional issues. The reality is, is our world is filled with people that are struggling with these things, all right? Maybe, you know, you're, you know, you're struggling with things like pornography. Well, you know, there's lots of people can do there too. Like, get an accountability partner. Get, you know, accountability software. You can get all that stuff for phones and, and computers, right? Or, or, or how about this? Just turn the stinking thing off, right? There are practical steps that you can take to gain self-control in these areas of your life. The point here is this is something that you can do practically to begin to do what you know God's calling you to do. So I'm gonna encourage you this week, don't just be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer of the word and pursue self-control. I promise you this is something I have to take seriously just like everyone else. And so I'm just gonna ask that you'd walk in this with me. And if we'll do that, then we will be a church that will continue to grow to be a pillar of truth in this community. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I'm going to admit that I don't always like what your word has to say. I always love the parts about grace. I always love the parts about your mercy. I always love the parts about Jesus shed blood and how he died for me, even though I don't understand it. I love the parts about how, you know, you've promised to, you know, to deliver us. I love, the, love all the promises about, you know, opening our eyes and, 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 and comforting us and strengthening us and all that good and wonderful stuff. But I don't love the stuff that convicts my heart. But the reality is, is it, I don't have to love that. I just need to just acknowledge it and walk in it. That's what you're calling us to do. That we need to grow. That it's time for us as, as Christians, especially in this country, to rise above the fray and be the beacon of hope that we're called to be. And we're not going to do that if we're walking in the ways of the world, that we need to practice the self-control that you're calling us to, that we need to walk in the godliness that you're calling us to, that we need to, to love and, and learn and study and protect and teach the doctrines that you're calling us to, that we need to then live them out. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd strengthen every one of us. I pray that you'd strengthen me, that you'd strengthen every one in this congregation to do what you're calling us to do, to do the hard work, and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. You're already working in us. You're already empowering us. Help us to then to, to, to have the strength to follow. Lord, we know what to do. Give us the strength and the courage to do something about it. And Father, I just pray for all the hearts and minds here. I pray for our entire congregation who are traveling and not here today. I pray that you bring them back here safely. And I pray, Father, that you would just continue to raise up in this church a people who are hungry for your word and who want to go out and share the hope of Jesus with the rest of the world. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.